we're going to look at uh, some of those verses uh, just for a few minutes this morning. Um, but should we pray as we come to God's word together? Join me as we pray. Father God, we worship you, Lord, as we set our hearts and our sight on you, Lord. We pray now as we do that through looking at your word together and just thinking about this, this awesome theme, Lord, of Pentecost. And Lord, we pray that you'd open our hearts to you, Lord. There's so much more to know, and so often we can feel like we've got to the end of what there is to, to know, Lord. And Lord, we're only scratching the, the very top of the surface. Yeah, Lord, you're an infinite God, and Lord, your word could take a lifetime of study. You would only still be a few percent the way through it. Lord, this morning, give us that sense of awe at your word, that sense of awe at your majesty, Lord, your sovereignty, your planning, Lord, and your power and your grace. Lord, be with every single one of us now as we look at your word together. And Lord, may these words honor you above all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's Pentecost. Um, so you know it's Pentecost because uh, we always try to be a bit, a bit more fun um, and a bit more sort of like that. But uh, it's Pentecost, and uh, so churches all over the world uh, will be thinking about Acts 2, no doubt, um, uh, hence our video at the beginning. Uh, we're not quite doing the same thing this week, um, but if you don't know what happened at Pentecost, the disciples had been told by Jesus after he'd been resurrected from the dead, he was with them for 40 days, and then he went back to heaven at the ascension, and he told them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And, uh, and they waited for about 10 days. And then on the 10th day, you imagine that's a long time, isn't it? Uh, the, the way the current culture is going, we can only wait for about three minutes. And then if nothing's happened by three minutes, well, it's not going to turn up, nothing's going to happen. But 10 days they waited. They waited in obedience and prayer. And then God's Holy Spirit fell upon them. It was poured out all on them. Tongues of fire, a great rushing wind, and they spoke in other tongues. Uh, people had come from Pentecost from all over the world. Jews from all over the world to celebrate Pentecost. And just like the harvest they were celebrating, they were brought into God's kingdom. 3,000 of them. Pentecost is a wonderful moment, unique moment. There's only one Pentecost. There used to be a song in the 90s uh, which had the tagline, we need another Pentecost. Uh, that's not quite right. Uh, there's only need for one. Uh, but what we need is the same Holy Spirit to work through us since Pentecost. It was a unique event, a powerful event. 3,000 people became Christians just like that, for one sermon. Most of us long for, for that kind of experience. But 3,000 people became Christians. They found their Savior, found everlasting life in that moment as the Holy Spirit fell. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promises them that they will be filled with power from the Holy Spirit and they will become his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in the whole world. And indeed, the whole world has been transformed because of Pentecost. Of course, the Pentecost couldn't have happened in the 21st century, could it? It can only happen in the 1st century. There's two very good reasons why Pentecost wouldn't have happened in the 21st century. The first is that no Christians would have turned up because it was at 9 in the morning. And of course, if they planned it properly, it would have been at half past 10 and only for an hour because dinner's on and we've all got more important things. No other things to do. So, uh, so the Christians wouldn't have turned up because it would have been far too early. If you're doing a big move of God, you'd plan it in advance, you'd do it at a sensible time so I can get my shopping first and then do that. The second reason Pentecost couldn't possibly happen today is for a very, very simple yet profound reason is that health and safety wouldn't allow it. It would have been condemned before it even started with an inadequate risk assessment following reports of wind and fire. All in the same thing. However... It did happen, praise the Lord. And God is a bigger than health and safety and Christians, thank goodness. Pentecost was the birth of the church. Pentecost actually is wonderful because Pentecost is our history this morning. 
It's not just an event that happened to some Jewish Christians 2,000 years ago. This is our family across 2,000 years. And this is our history. This is our shared history with them. And we trace the church back to the Pentecost 2,000 years ago. That's the, the, the history that happened then, but it's the reality for us as well. God's spirit fell with power. And normal people became transformed people. Weak people became strong people. Scared people became bold people. And the world has never been the same since, despite what the telly may tell you. And so um, often when we get to Pentecost, uh, we suddenly look at Acts chapter 2. We spend most of the year ignoring it um, sometimes. We suddenly get to it and we look at Acts chapter 2. And we want to think about what it means for us. Well, what does it mean on Monday? What does it mean next week? How do I live a more Acts chapter 2 kind of Christianity? And next week, perhaps we'll come on to that. I'd like to come on to that next week because I think there's a great challenge for us uh, from Acts chapter 2, a challenge that I think is badly needed. But today, uh, before we look forward and next, I'd like to look back because actually Pentecost was prophesied hundreds of years before the upper room moment in Jerusalem, 600 years, possibly 800 years before, God promised his people there was an age coming, a time was going to come when he would relate to his people differently, in a new way, a special way, a way that hadn't happened before. And those three uh, readings that we had from Rob and Phil and Anne uh, are three big prophecies in the Old Testament. The big three, we'll call them, why not? And, um, but Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Joel were three big prophetic uh, deliverances given to God's people that pointed forward at a time, a real low time for God's people. There was a new age coming, a time was going to come when God was going to do something majestic. He was going to do something, he was going to relate to his people in a new way. Now, each of these three prophecies come from three, well, two very big books and one fairly short one. But the books themselves are very complicated and they've got lots and lots in them. So we're going to not do them justice at all. And I'm sorry about that. We haven't even got time, really, to go through each of the three books. Suffice to say that those three books, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, that we had read to us, whilst they're very different scenarios, each one is slightly different to the other. The message to God's people remains similar in all three. The message from those three books, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, uh, follows the same kind of thinking. That God's people have gone astray, they've stopped being holy, they've turned to idolatry, they've turned their back on God, they've broken their agreement with God. And those books say, stop it, repent, come back, say you're sorry because God is going to punish the sin that you're committing. And God gives them chance after chance after chance and these books say it's coming Exiles coming for you, or your enemies are going to come for you and attack you. But these books, while very sobering and very serious, as they talk about God's people turn their back on him and, and the punishment that follows, all have restoration in them as well. Because each of these three books, as God says, your enemies are going to come, we're going to go off for exile for 70 years in Babylon and Assyria. He then talks of how there's going to be a day after that when he's going to bring them back from the nations he's going to rescue them from their enemies and he's going to return them to their land and bless them all over again all three talk of restoration despite the sin of God's people I only wanted to flag that up because I think that's a message that maybe we need to hear this morning and I don't know what you're like this morning but I'm a sinner I'm a terrible one actually well no I'm a very good sinner I'm a terrible Christian that's yeah I wish I was a terrible sinner and a better Christian but I'm a I'm an excellent sinner I sin every single day and I wish and I hope and every day I promise God that today's the day he's going to get the best of Gary Hansen. And every night I go to bed, I apologize that I've let him down all over again. 
And this morning you probably have the same sin that's been bugging you and you can't quite shake and you don't want to shake because you quite like doing it. And it's there and you keep trying to get rid of it and you keep praying, Lord, I'm really sorry and you know God's forgiven you because that's what we're taught and that's what's true. And you do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And the devil whispers to you, well, you know, you're kind of substandard Christian now. You've done it too often. God's probably fed up with you. And so although you're still going to heaven, that's right, you'll never be a great Christian because you're too bad. Utter rubbish. Because actually these three books, you couldn't get God's people falling further, really. And although they had to go through difficult times, and God did rightly so punish the sin they committed against him, there was restoration. And there was a bright future promised to them. And when you sin, you sin against God, but God's grace is bigger than your sin. And I think we need to say that over and over and over in these days because so often we sin and we sin and we sin and we feel terrible about ourselves and we convince ourselves that the devil of God has stopped loving us but our God is a God of restoration and forgiveness and if you remember the prodigal son a few weeks ago how far could that kid have got not much further yet the father desperately wanted him back so this morning if you feel you've gone too far it's not true God wants you back God will restore you God does love you Psalm 30 verse 5 says, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favour lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And in Lamentations chapter 2, um, verse, sorry, chapter 3, verse 22 to 24, says, because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. God's faithfulness is bigger than your sin. And that's something that every single one of us should remember. So back to these three prophecies. They predict a time, they prophesy a time when God is going to move in a new way with his people. And that really is fulfilled and begins in earnest at Pentecost. As the Holy Spirit is poured on and in God's people in a fresh way for the very first time. Uh, let me ask a question. Who is the Holy Spirit? Maybe you've never even heard of the Holy Spirit before. You may be new to it all. You may be wondering, oh, I've heard of God, I've heard of Jesus. Who's the Holy Spirit? The answer is God. We believe in this amazing God, which won't make any sense to you what I'm about to say. But it, we believe in this incredible God. One God, only one God. But our God is three he is three individual yet distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God who is at the same time God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If that blows your mind, that's all right. Because if it didn't, I've made him up. So that's how I go with that. It's good to have your mind blown. But God is this amazing God. He is Father, Son, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So who is the Holy Spirit? He is God. He is not an it, he is not a force, he is not a thing that God kind of throws at his people. He is a being with a will and a character. And he is God who comes to live with us and in us. And if Pentecost doesn't blow your mind with that thought alone, then maybe we've not been listening. God the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you when you become a Christian. I find that pretty incredible myself. And so that's that question. So let's look at these three uh, prophecies um, as succinctly as we can. So Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34, it'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, I'll read it to you again. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. 
because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. This is the most wonderful promise to a people who have turned their back, utterly turned their back on God. And what the problem in the book of Jeremiah isn't just that the people have gone astray, that their leaders and their priests have really gone astray. God made a covenant, it's like an agreement, like a contract. And you'll remember, if you know the Bible very well, that God's people went to Mount Sinai with Moses and he gave them a covenant. He gave them an agreement that they would be his people. They would reflect him like priests to the whole world. The, the, the idea was that they would become so much like the king of kings and God himself that the surrounding nations who were broken and lost would see Israel and want to be like them and want to know God properly. But the problem with that covenant is that it was written on tablets of stone and it relied on men, priests and leaders, to administer it and lead the people in the ways of God. But in the book of Jeremiah, God's leadership, God's leaders have become corrupted and gone astray. And they've led the people astray. And so God, whilst coming against them, makes this wonderful promise that in the future I'm going to do something new where he's going to deal with individuals directly. No need for priests or kings anymore. There'll be one great high priest in heaven at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ. And he will work with us individually. I will not have to say to someone else, know the Lord, because everyone can know the Lord on their own because of God's Holy Spirit. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection made a way for God's presence his Holy Spirit to be in every single one of us. And it is the most wonderful promise to a people who are going off to exile and about to have their capital city destroyed and everything going horribly wrong, that God is going to take away the shepherds that have led them in the wrong path. And he himself will be their good shepherd and their great high priest. And he himself will work in their hearts and teach them his laws and bring them into a deeper relationship. Romans 8, verse 16 to 17 Paul writes about God's spirit in us. It says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live again in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. How wonderful God has given us his Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, testifies to us, our own spirits, that we're God's children. And I tell you what, that's the most wonderful experience for me as being a Christian. That God speaks to my heart. He tells me that he loves me on a daily basis. He tells me I'm forgiven. He tells me that he's near, that he's not left me when I muck it up and go the wrong direction. He tells me that I'm his child. And it's the most wonderful feeling of security a human being can ever have for God to say, you're mine. And to testify to my innermost parts that I am a child of the king, a child of God. Jeremiah predicts that that time is going to come when everyone will know the Lord in a new, fresh intimate way and that's what happened at Pentecost that was the beginning of this time 
that we are fortunate enough to live in. God's very presence in us. One of my most favorite stories I love is a guy who was at Speaker's Corner debating Christianity. He stood on the, on the box debating with passers-by. And uh, somebody said, well, how do you know that Jesus is really real? And he said, because I spent half an hour speaking with him this morning. And I love it because it just says to the world, this is not dead religion we follow. This is a living relationship. God's spirit is within us and we get to talk to him and know him and call him Abba Father. Not just Father, Abba Father. Jeremiah points to that moment that's coming that started with Pentecost. And then let's go forward to Ezekiel chapter 36. Uh, written at a similar time to Jeremiah 36, 24 to 27. And God says, For I will take you out of the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. And like Jeremiah, this book is extremely depressing reading as history of God's people. They have completely turned their back on him. They have put idols in the temple. They have, dis- they have completely ignored God's commands and not have gods made of stone and gold, but they've done it anyway. And they've worshipped these false idols, false gods. They're going to go off to exile. They've been exiled. They're going to have 70 years away. But again, the message is, even though they're morally corrupt, God's going to bring them back. He's going to bring them back and establish them. He's going to restore them later on. But more than that, God then makes this most wonderful promise. I'm not just going to bring you back, even though you've been disobedient. I'm going to give you a heart transplant. I'm going to take out your hard heart. And I'm going to give you one of flesh. One that can know me. One that can love me. One that can be healed and cleansed. I'm going to clean you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be mine in a way you've never been before. And isn't that what God is in the business of doing all the time? Taking hard-hearted people, hard-hard people, and softening them by his Holy Spirit. Isn't that what God does every single day? Haven't we heard that the last few weeks? Of people have met and been given a new heart, a new spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new has come. The new is here, I should say. God loves to take what's broken and what's hard and gone, uh, died in us, and take it away and replace it with new life and new hope. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. We read about the work of God's Spirit within us. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking envy with each other and envying each other. But that idea that God puts his Spirit within us, that new heart, and he begins to plant seeds that make us kinder, more gentle, more wonderful, more godly, having more self-control. That is what God is in the business of doing. And at Pentecost, that's when that started in earnest. As the Spirit of God poured into everyday individuals. I want to play you a video of a, a guy that was utterly lost. And then he discovered God in that 
unique way.